0: So when I was a kid, we always had cats. Uh, The best pet I've ever had was a cat named Pepper. She showed up when I was, I guess, in elementary school in our neighborhood. She was a stray, she was running around. We eventually adopted her. And she was awesome because she was an inside-outside cat, and so she would go outside and kill things. Uh, She killed multiple rabbits, snakes, even little baby birds, which maybe is like sad, but also when you're a kid, it's like pretty cool. Like one time, we walked into the garage and there was just feathers everywhere. And all we could hear was the crunching of her mouth as she was eating this wonderful little beast. Now, she was also awesome because when she was inside, like, she would sit on your lap. She would let you pick you up, her pick you up. She was like a hunter-killer teddy bear. Uh, And she was awesome. Unfortunately, when I was in middle school, uh, she died. And about a year or two later, like, all kids, like, everybody wants a dog, right? And the reason we hadn't gotten a dog was because my dad didn't want a dog. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with how these stories typically go. Like typically the kids like beg for a dog or the mom begs for a dog. The dad's like, I don't want a dog, uh, finally gets a dog. And then the dad's the one like brushing its teeth and clipping its nails and taking on a walk because he loves it, right? And so we eventually got a dog. Uh, This dog's name was Buddy and it was awesome. And about six or nine months later, guess what happened? We got rid of the dog. (laughs) it was awesome now <laughs> my dad's defense he's he was the ever pragmatist so so he's he wanted a used dog which means not a puppy he wanted a dog that was already potty trained and like knew how to beat dog things uh, the the, bad si- the downside was the dog that we rescued I guess just really didn't like guys at all and so our friends would come over and he like bark and growl at them and it wasn't like a safe thing um, so we had to get rid of it now I share that story we're in this series called new year same you and as we are flipping the calendar if we want to experience 2021 different than. 2020, we have to do different things. Now today, we are talking about everyone's favorite subject, which is spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. And I say that facetiously because it's like one of those things, if you're a follower of Christ, you know we're supposed to do, but it seems like it's difficult or it's hard or it's boring sorry, right? And so we don't want to do it. We kind of view it like my dad getting a dog. He tried it and he still didn't like it. Now you can contrast that uh, to when my wife and I were dating, we got engaged and we were going through a premarital counseling. And she said that uh, she didn't want to have kids. I don't remember all of this, but she does. And she told me my response to that was, well, you'll just change your mind later. So I wasn't really worried about it. Um, sounds like something I would say. Um, I probably thought that because when we started dating, she was like, I don't want to get married. And then she met me. And so I thought, well, if you want to marry me, what's better than just little Dylan's running around, right? And we have one. His name is Roman. Okay. Oh, and by the way, he's awesome. Okay. For those of you that are, he is awesome. Now the, the good news is, unlike my dad, she likes our children, right? She wants to keep our children and she loves our children. And so, my task here over the next few minutes is to get you to view spiritual practices not like my dad viewed a dog, but like Christina viewed her children. And to do that, let me just present to you this thesis or this suggestion as we begin. Just imagine with me loving Jesus more at the end of this year through simple rhythms. Imagine loving Jesus more than you do now. At the end of this year, not through complex things that are hard and difficult that make you feel guilty for quitting, but through simple, easy to do, and replicable rhythms. I think all of us, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, you're like, I want to get there. So the question is, how? How can we do this in a way that is uh, doable, that we won't give up, and that we can actually experience the benefits from? That's what I want to try to do over these next few minutes. And so to begin, I want to preface this by saying this. Here's what we need to know. That in order to be like Jesus, you should be like Jesus. It's profound. I know, you're like, how does he think (laughs) of these things? But in order to be like Jesus, you should be like Jesus. Here's the deal. If we follow Jesus, of course, his death, burial, and resurrection, his grace is what saves us. But we also want to emulate him. Now, we're not perfect. We're not going to do everything the way that he did, but we want to love people and serve people and live the way that he lived. And so in order for us to do that, uh, we should probably emulate some of the things that he did. Just like if you emulate someone in your field or a friend or a boss or someone you thought was cool was growing up, you try to do things to be like them. We should do the same thing for Jesus. One of the difficult things about Jesus and I think it makes us a little uncomfortable to say is that when he was on earth, he was yes, 100% God but he was also 100% human, right? It's this humanness part of him that we kind of disregard. We kind of say, well, he followed God the Father because that's just what he wanted to do and he was in perfect communion all the time and everything was great, but he was a human. He had a human body, he had human limitations, he had a human mind, and so it should not surprise us that he had some very uh, intense for him or for us, if we look at it, uh, but very intense, very uh, consistent disciplines that helped him have communion with the Father the way that he did. In other words, we, if we just say, well, he's just Jesus, the Son of God, so of course he was going to be all these things. Well, that's to kind of disregard how he actually lived. And I think what happens for us when we talk about spiritual practices is we kind of view them like New Year's resolutions, right? It's like everyone's tried them and then we quit them because what happens is is we make impossible goals then we can't hit them and we get discouraged and then we stop, right? And so, for example, when the New Year starts and someone's like, well, I want to get healthy and I want to start going to the gym, you might have this goal to go to the gym three times a week. Well, if you never go to the gym and then you say, I'm going to go three times a week, you're probably going to fail because that's too big of a jump. You need to set yourself up to get in the habit of going to the gym, right? Or we talk about this sometimes if you're like, well, I want to read the Bible more, right? It's a new year, I'm not very consistent. And maybe you read it once or twice a week. And then you say, well, I'm going to read the Bible in a year. Well, that's a problem because in order to read the Bible in a year, you've got to read it every single day for about 10 to 20 minutes. And so to do that from very inconsistent, you're setting yourself up to fail. And so what I want us to do is to not kind of set these massive goals that we can't hit, but to see what Jesus did see some of the practices that he lived, and see what does it look like for us to set realistic rhythms in our life to be like him. And so uh, to do that, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 this morning. And so if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and flip there. We're going to see a few other passages as well. But if you want to read along, you can read along with me and Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one somewhere around you. You can read along there with us. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, what we're going to do here is we're going to see some of the practices and the rhythms that Jesus partook in and see how it it relates to us. Matthew 4 is the beginning of Jesus's um, earthly ministry. Matthew chapter 3, he was just baptized and he's about 30 years old and he is going to start uh, his ministry here on earth. But before he does that, he begins with a trial and a temptation that he has to pass. And so here's what it says, Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. Thank you, Matthew, for that detail. 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry. Now, we're not going to get into it this morning, but what Jesus is doing here, he's in the wilderness beginning his ministry uh, and, uh, for 40 days. It's supposed to replicate here uh, the 40 years that the Israelites were in the wilderness. And in fact, Jesus in this passage references Old Testament passages in Deuteronomy that have to do with the Israelites in Egypt. What we're supposed to see happening here is that unlike the Israelites in their wandering and in their wilderness when they would often fail and fall short, Jesus isn't going to do that. He's actually going to pass the test. And one of the ways he does this is by first fasting. Now this is all over scripture. I'm just picking one example to show us. I do think as we're talking about the 21 days of prayer and fasting, uh, 40 days makes 21 days not sound that bad, right? Especially if you're not doing a complete fast. And we'll talk about that in a second. But again, we have to remember Jesus was a human being. He he went 40 days. He was hungry. In fact, I know people that have fasted for 40 days. It is a thing that you can do. And this is what Jesus did. Why? To have communion and to grow closer with his relationship with God the Father. And so, one of the things that we see here is that Jesus fasted. Jesus fasted. It is one of the uh, practices that he had uh, multiple times. Now, he only did 40 days that we know of one time, but this wasn't a weird or inconsistent thing for him. One of the practices that he had was fasting. And so that's what we see as he begins this trial is that he fasted. And it will continue in verse three and see another practice that he often had. It says this, uh, then the tempter, which is Satan, approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, Jesus answered, it is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, what happens here is Jesus responds to Satan, uh, his temptation, and his test by quoting Deuteronomy. Here, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is all about Moses in the wilderness with the Israelites. They're about to soon enter the promised land. And Deuteronomy 8 is, is Moses here, he's speaking to the Israelites after 40 years of testing and trial to show them and to tell them that part of their trial in, uh, over these four decades was to show them that bread alone isn't all that we need, that we need to trust and rely on. On the Lord to provide. And so that is what uh, Jesus is doing here. He's hungry. Satan is te- te- tempting him to turn the stone into bread. And he's saying, Well, no, just like the Israelites in the wilderness had to learn, I am uh, seeing and experiencing that bread alone is not all that I need. I also need to trust and be in relationship with God the Father. And he continues in verse 5. Then it says this Then the devil took him to the holy city, which is Jerusalem. We're not sure how they got there, but somehow they're now in Jerusalem. And had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, which is the temple in Jerusalem, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, so now he's going to quote scripture, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So Satan also does the same thing here. He's quoting from Psalm 91, which is all about God's protection and care. So Satan's saying, jump off his cliff. See, the old Hebrew Bible talks about God will protect you. You should do it. Now, what we should understand here is that Satan's goal is not scriptural obedience, but testing, right? He's trying to test Jesus. It's not to instruct, but it's actually to deceive. And in fact, if Jesus would have fallen through with this and jumped off and didn't die and uh, in Jerusalem, was a lot of people, a lot of people would have saw it. Uh, he would have gained quite a following. He would become quite the spectacle. But it would be against his plan to suffer and to die, not to become a spectacle for the world. And so Jesus responds by saying this in verse 7. Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. So again, he's quoting here from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he's saying, what you're telling me to do would actually be in a direct contradiction of what God asks us to do. And so Jesus, again, when he's tempted, responds with scripture. And then finally, in verse 8, it says this, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and began to serve him. So what happens here in this final test is that Satan offers Jesus a shortcut to the future reign uh, that would sidestep what was going to happen, right? Ultimately, all nations will bow down to Jesus. uh, But what would happen here if Jesus were to accept uh, Satan's kind of offer here is it would sidestep his redemptive work, the fact that he had to suffer and die. And so again, what does Jesus do? He responds, with scripture. And so what we need to understand here is that it would be, I believe, incorrect to say, well, he resisted Satan simply because he was the son of God. What we actually see happening is that Jesus passes this test in part by knowing the scriptures. In other words, Jesus knew scripture. It wasn't just like, well, I just can say no because I'm more special than everybody else. Again, he's 100% human. He's relying on the Holy Spirit. He knew Scripture. Now, this is not to say that we have to, like, memorize large chunks of the, Bi- of the Bible undoubtedly like Jesus did, and many in his tradition would have, but he was familiar with it. It wasn't this odd thing. I don't know what you respond to when th- times are hard and difficult, but Jesus often responded with Scripture. So it's an encouragement to us that something about spending time, even doing what we're doing here today, is important, and it helps us become more like Jesus, course, that's not the only thing he did. It also says this in Mark chapter one, you can flip there it'll be on on the screen. I'm going to read a couple of verses really quick. He also did things like this. It says and very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. Or in Luke chapter six, it says during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. Or in Luke five, it says, "But the news spread about him even more, and large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Yet he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed." Now, what's interesting here about these three examples that I just gave gave you? I didn't give you all the context, but in these examples, Jesus was not facing a significant trial or test. It was just a rhythm of his to pray. However, when he was facing trials and temptations and difficult moments, he also prays. In fact, in Matthew 26, when Jesus is about to be betrayed and handed over to be crucified and killed, it says this, then Jesus came to, to them with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And of course, even in the most difficult moment of his life in Luke 23, when he's on the cross dying, it says, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, these people who are doing these things to him because they do not know what they were doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. So another rhythm, uh, consistent rhythm in Jesus' life was that Jesus prayed. Jesus Pray. Now, here's the part of the problem when it comes to prayer and really a lot of these spiritual rhythms uh, is that we kind of set these mythical rules for ourselves that we can't hit, and then we feel guilty, uh, and then we give up. And so we, for example, think that if you're going to pray, you've got to pray for like at least 30 minutes. Otherwise, it doesn't count. And if you get distracted, well, shame on you. It doesn't count. Now, I don't know any of us that can pray for 30 minutes without being distracted, right? And so what happens? We think we can't do it, and so we give up. And so one of the things I want to encourage you is this, is it's kind of thinking this when it comes to spiritual rhythms and practices. Says who, right? Who says you have to pray for 30 minutes? Who says that your mind can't trail off? Who says that God is angry with you and it doesn't want to listen to you unless you're going to focus and like be completely undistracted? Because I'll tell you what, scripture doesn't say that. But right? why do we think that prayer has to look, or look a certain way for it to count? What's wrong with trying and praying for a few minutes and getting distracted and coming back on track? Or what's wrong with praying and maybe even falling asleep? Like, what's wrong with just attempting to do it, right? Uh, Jesus, again, did these things. Again, part of the reason why he was so consistent in them or he did them so largely is because he did them often. But for us, it is okay if it doesn't look like that, right? It's okay. Who says it has to look a certain way when instead we could just try and we can just do it, right? And so for Jesus he prayed. We also see that Jesus lived in community. We talked about relationships and community last week, so I'm not going to kind of rehash it all here. But Jesus lived in community, right? The church was important. Being together was important. In fact, I don't know if you've seen this meme floating around on the internet, but it's pretty great. It says this, the biggest miracle Jesus ever pulled off was having 12 close friends in his 30s, <laughs> right? Like he was not alone. Like he had community, right? Jesus lived and community, right? And we laugh at that, but it's, it's true, right? And community was intentional part of what he did. And what's interesting, uh, sometimes we kind of view like the different religions of the world, Ju- Judaism, Christianity, Islam as is like all these breaks and all these different, you know, thoughts and, and that sort of thing. What's interesting is that Jesus didn't come to eradicate Judaism. He didn't come and say, I'm starting this new thing. That was wrong. We're going to start. He came to be the fulfillment of what God had promised. He was deeply embedded in his, Jewish, uh, uh, in his Jewish community. He didn't kind of condemn it. He didn't say, how dare you? He said, I am the fulfillment of what is happening. He didn't come necessarily to start this new thing. He came to reveal to us who he was so that all of the world, not just the Israelites, can come and to know him. But this wasn't tried, supposed to be some hard break and say, woe is you and I'm like this best awesome thing. It was a continuation of what God had started from the beginning of the world when he promised a redeemer to come. Jesus was in community. And so again, I want to encourage us because I think sometimes when we come to church and talk about spiritual things is that we can feel bad. Like we we can feel like we've got to do better at all these different things. Well, just for the fact, for example, that you're here today, like you're doing some of these practices, right? We're studying the scriptures. We're being in community. I want to encourage you. Sometimes when we talk about these things, it's not always starting new things. Sometimes it's just being encouraged to continue in what you're already doing. And as we talked about earlier today, uh, we have a lot of different ways you can get involved in community if you're interested. Community groups start up next week. We'd love to get you more information about that. Uh, Our partnership, if you're new and you've never been, is on Sunday the 24th. Uh, You can learn more about our church and see if this is the community that you want to be invested in. Um, If you're new and you want to serve, that's a great way to meet new people. And we could certainly uh, use the help. Uh, That's a great way to see if this is your community. But Jesus lived in community, and so community should be helpful and important to us. And then finally, a, a last big thing that Jesus did and lived was that Jesus was generous. Jesus was generous, right? The gospel is that he gave everything that he had, his, even his own life, so that you and I could see and experience him. Jesus was generous. Now, unfortunately, when we talk about generosity, especially when it comes to money, and the church is like this awkward taboo thing, which it shouldn't be at all, right? Jesus talked about resources a lot. We all handle money. It's not some weird, at least at New City, it's not some weird thing. We're going to talk about more about generosity next week, so I'm not going to get into a lot here, but I do just want to say this. Again, talking about this idea of says who, we often think generosity is giving 10% of our gross income to the church, and that's what counts. And so let me just tell you this, I know faithful Christians disagree, but if you're calling New City Church home as your pastor, I want you to know that you do not have to give 10% of your gross income to the church to be faithfully generous. You don't have to do that. Now, there's different reasons why people kind of think that's a good goal. I think that's a good goal to shoot for, but you can be faithful and generous and not do that, right? Who says that you have to check a box of 10% in order for it to count? I would argue Scripture doesn't say that. What Scripture says is it encourages us to meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with Him. And so what I would say, if you're not consistent in your generosity, why don't you try 1%? Why don't you try 2%? Why don't you try something consistently and see what God does. The better question is, do you have a plan to be generous? It's not so much the percentage that you give. And if you've been a part of New City Church for a while, and you're not comfortable giving to this church, I would encourage you to be a part of a local community that you actually can financially support. But the percentage doesn't matter as much as our hearts, right? Do you have a plan to be generous? Because Jesus was generous. Now, here's the thing about all these things that I talked about. In our mind, again, we have this idea of what a super Christian looks like. Uh, they pray at least 30 minutes every day, uh, and they're not distracted when they do it. Uh, they go to church every week, and uh, they serve every week, and they lead a Bible study. Uh, they give 10% of their gross income all the time, uh, every, every month, and they fast at least once a week, right? And we think that this is what the ideal model of a Christian looks like. And let me just let you in a little secret. Nobody does that. <laughs> Nobody does that, Okay. Nobody goes to church every single week and serves every week. In fact, New City Church, we don't want you to do that. Nobody prays uninterrupted. I shouldn't say nobody. Hardly anybody prays uninterrupted every single day for at least 30 minutes. Uh, Hardly anybody that I know every single day will study the scriptures for, I don't know, at least 30 minutes, right? You have an hour quiet time every day between prayer and scripture reading. Like most people don't do that. Um, Most people don't give 10% of their gross income right? And that is okay. Again, what we have in our mind, again, when it comes to spiritual disciplines is you have to do all of these things. And if I can't do all of these things, then it's difficult and I failed. So why even try? Now, so what I want to encourage us with this is I shared a couple of the main things that Jesus did, but instead of getting focused on doing all these things and making it sound really difficult, here would be my encouragement for you as we look at the various spiritual practices that Jesus himself lived. Here's what I would say. I would encourage you to practice one thing that will grow you closer to Jesus. Practice one thing that will grow you closer to Jesus, right? Simple rhythms, not impossible goals that we cannot reach. Just one thing. Try one thing that you're not doing now. Make it easy and attainable and not something that you want to quit so that you can develop the habit of doing these things. Now, the good news is that we have an opportunity for all of us to do that. And that is with the 21 days of prayer and fasting, the piece of paper that you have in front of you. Right? What here, let me just give you an example of what this can look like. Uh, there's different types of fasts. You can complete fast only liquids for 21 days. Uh, you can do a selective class, a fast where you remove certain elements. You could do a mixture of those things. Maybe fast for one 24-hour period a week over the next three weeks, and then the days that you are eating. You, there's things called Daniel fast. Or you can Google, or you can have different things that you're just going to restrict from your diet. Uh, you can have a partial fast where you only maybe skip one meal a day, or how often you want to do it. Or you can have what's kind of a, 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 called a soul fast, which isn't a dietary fast by something else. I would just. Uh, encourage you, uh, as long as you don't have a medical condition, to do some sort of dietary fast because um, that's what they did in Scripture. Fasting for Scripture was actually about food, but also to encourage us and to remind us that we want something, right? There's nothing wrong, for example, of fasting from social media, but that's like something that we know that we should do from time to time, because it can be pretty toxic. But a dietary fast, like you're wanting something, and it's encouraging you and reminding you that you and I don't live by bread alone. So I would encourage you to take some type of fast that you can actually do. If you've never fasted before, do not say, I'm gonna completely fast for 21 days. You will not do it right? Do something simple. Do something that's not going to kind of weigh on you that you can actually do. And then you can pray. I know this is kind of just two things and not one thing, but these things go together. And let me show you how easy this is. What if instead of saying, I'm going to pray for 30 minutes a day, I'm going to give up and it's going to be hard, that you take this list on the top of the piece of paper. We have things that we're going to pray for. Add a couple of personal items, maybe friends or family or a nation or COVID on this piece of paper. Just write it. Take this piece of paper, two minutes in the morning, two minutes at night, pray for each bullet point until you get distracted for 10 to 15 seconds. I'm gonna pray for financial provision for our church in light of COVID-19. Oh, I'm thinking about cat videos. Go to the next thing, right? And here's the thing. If you do this twice a day, in the morning and at night, you pray for two minutes. Let me here, here's the thing. You've done it. I would take 10 to 15 seconds of prayer over day over nothing. Right? I mean, just that's that simple. This is a simple way to pray. You can write a list out. Pray through your list, 10 to 15 seconds for each one until you get distracted, and then you've done it, right? Here's how you can do this 21 days of prayer and fasting. Pick something that you can fast that's doable, and then pray in the morning or at night with this written list. Pray through the list, and then you are done, right? This is a simple way to practice a rhythm that will grow you closer to Jesus, because the point of all these things, again, is not to check off some lists. Uh, so that we can make ourselves feel better. We do this because it allows us to experience more of who Jesus is. Right? We do this so like Jesus, we can experience the grace and mercy of the Father even in all these tight and contentious times. Uh, we do this, in other words, to do what Tim Keller says. He's a pastor and author in New York City. This quote will be on the screen. I think this is one of the ways that should encourage us to practice a simple spiritual rhythm. Now, this quote, uh, he's talking about uh, sin, but it can also be on the other, so it'll be on the screen. Here's what it says uh, It says, If you are a Christian and you are dealing with enslaving habits, or for our purposes this morning, the desire to want to grow spiritually, let's just say, it's not enough to say, bad Christian, stop it, right? Or like, I'm guilty, I'm not good enough at praying, so I'm just, I'm I'm a bad Christian, I should be better. That's not a good thing to do. He says instead, and it's not enough to beat yourself up or merely try harder and harder and harder. The real reason that you have a problem with an enslaving habit or maybe the difficulty of having spiritual rhythm that helps you grow closer to Jesus is because ultimately you are not tasting God. I'm not talking about believing God or even obeying God. I'm saying tasting God. And then he says, You need to sense God's greatness and to be moved by it, moved by who God is and what he has done for you. And so the question then becomes How do we taste the goodness of God uh, and be moved by him? The answer to that would be simple spiritual practices and rhythms to commune with God the Father, to put our soul at ease, to put our trust in Him instead of what they're saying on Twitter about what's happening in the world. Now, here's what's interesting. And I want to, uh, we opened our time looking at Jesus' first temptation in Matthew chapter 4. And so what I want to do is I want to close our time looking at Jesus' final temptation before He went to the cross. And it says this in Matthew 26. It'll be on the screen. Jesus with His disciples. And he's at His final temptation and remember that Jesus' lifestyle, remember this, had led him to desire what is good. It's not enough to say, well, he was just God the Son, you know, God in flesh on the earth, and so that's why he did this. No, no, his rhythms in life led him to have a relationship with God the Father that encouraged him to not do what he desired, but what God desired. And so ultimately we see that in John, uh, Matthew 26, verse 36, it says this. Then they came to, with them, he's with his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane, what we read earlier. And he told his disciples, sit here, while I go over there and pray, he's about to be arrested and he wants to go pray one final time before this happens. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, so three of his disciples, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Now, again, we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is actually referencing Psalm 42, verse five, when he says, I am deeply Grieved. It's the same words in Hebrew. In other words, at the moment of his deepest crisis, again, he is going back to scripture. Now, what's important for us is sometimes in the New Testament when the reference is just a verse, you're supposed to view it as like a hyperlink to like the bigger narrative of what is going on. Now, that's a little Bible nerdy, but it's helpful to understand Matthew, the gospel of Matthew uh, was originally written with a Jewish audience in mind. And so at any time that there was these Old Testament references, they would have brought to their minds what was going on. And so Psalm, chapter four, or Psalm 42 is all about uh, trusting in God in the moments of deep crisis. In fact, if you're familiar with, the Psalm. It's the one that says, my soul pants for you like a deer pants for water. Again, it's all about trusting God in the midst of deep sorrow and dejection. And so this is what Jesus is calling to mind as he's about to be portrayed. In fact, I just want to read to you, I think this is awesome, uh, the last three verses in Psalm 42 to help us understand, again, as the original readers would have understood what Jesus was saying. The last three verses of Psalm 42, verse 9 and 11, it says this. It says, I will say to God, my rock. Why have you forgotten me? Does that sound familiar anymore? What does Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> where am I? So he says, you, right forgot me. Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? Verse 10, my adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones. While all day long, they say to me, where is your God? What do they say to Jesus when he's being beaten and put on the cross? If you're God, why can't you just come down? This is awesome. Verse 11, why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Remember, Jesus says, as we're going to see, he doesn't want to do this, but he's going to trust God. Ultimately, this is what Psalm 42 ends with. Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. This is what is going through Jesus' mind before he's going to be betrayed. And so he ends by saying this in verse 39. It says, going a little further, he fell face down and prayed, my Father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now, what's interesting here, the word will is this Greek word thelema, which means desire or will. In other words, what Jesus is literally saying, not my desire or not what I desire, but what you desire. In other words, when Jesus is facing his ultimate test, it is couched in terms of desire. Now, why does this matter? This matters. Again, we've said this a lot. I thought this was just going to be an Exodus thing, but we've talked about it a lot since the, the, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. This is just another example. The whole story arc of the Bible is people choosing their own desires instead of God's, right? Genesis chapter three, what happens? You have Adam and Eve in the, in the garden. What does it say? They desired what was from the tree. They desired what God did not want for them, and then their life uh, became difficult. All throughout Scripture, when we see person after person failing the test that Jesus doesn't fail, it's because their desires ultimately overcame them, but that's not what happened to Jesus. His desires were so attuned, and you cannot say when you read the stories of his lives, it's just because he's the Son of God. It has to be partially and part, in part because of the practices and rhythms in his Life. In other words, this is why I think it's important for us to think about and to meditate on and to practice simple rhythms because spiritual practices allow us to taste and see that the Lord is good. At the end of the day, here's why this matters. Spiritual practices, they're not a thing to check off. They're not a thing you should do because they're just the right thing to do and God will love you more ultimately more than anything else. Spiritual practices, disciplines, and simple rhythms allow us to taste and to see that the Lord is good and we do not do that if we do not involve ourselves in these things. I like to think of it like this. Um, a couple of years ago, I started, I read this book called Atomic Habits. It's re, I highly recommend it. It's basically how to start all these new habits and how to break bad habits. And so one of the habits I started from this was flossing. And I think I've shared this a couple of times. I was someone who did not floss every day. And so for the past about two years now, I floss almost every single day. Now, um, I didn't know that it made that much of a difference because you know that dentists like say you should floss more. Well, about six months into this flossing journey, journey, I go to the dentist and they tell me that I'm doing a great job brushing. And I didn't say this to them. And I'm like, I'm actually not brushing anything else, any differently, but I'm flossing every day. Who knew that flossing actually matters, right? Didn't do anything different, but just floss for the first time ever. They didn't tell me that I need to like improve or do something better. And then I go back six months later and I'm like, I wonder if they're going to say the same thing. They say the same thing. And then I go back six months later and they say the same thing. And so I had a dentist appointment a few weeks ago, and you know, I'm like, this is, I know what they're gonna say. I'm flossing every day. Like, it's gonna be great. This practice has been a good thing. I go to the dentist, they do the whole thing. Uh, the dentist comes in at the end, he says, Well, Dylan? And I'm like, Oh, shoot. This is what I get for like thinking. He says, Dylan, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. And I'm like, That's right. That's right. I'm doing a great job. Amen. But well, here's the thing. Why don't I share that story? because I, I developed a practice and it actually made a difference. And in fact, now it feels kind of weird if I don't floss, right? And, and I say that not because, again, we, we we're supposed to do spiritual practices because it's the right thing to do, but it's because we actually, you actually get to feel the benefits of communing with God when he is a regular part of your life. Here's the thing, you cannot do everything Right? You can't go from uh, not reading your Bible to reading your Bible every day and praying 30 minutes every day and fasting every month and never missing church and going to every church thing, which you shouldn't do anyway, and giving 10% of your gross income away. You can't do all those things, but you can do something, right? You can do something. And so let's not set unrealistic goals for ourselves that paralyze us and lead us to doing nothing. I think you and I can pick one spiritual rhythm and see what God might do through it. And here's why here's what I know. You will not love Jesus more at the end of this year if you did the same things you do in 2020. You just won't. And you may be somebody who's following Jesus well, and you're being encouraged with him. And so I want to say, I'm not even saying add something to your plate. Like if you have spiritual rhythms, keep it up. But if you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus, it's always good to take steps. And so whether you have a lot of practices or none, I would encourage you to try one thing and see what God might do so that at the end of this year, You're not feeling the same way that you feel now. How awesome would it be if you could say before God that you love Jesus more at the end of the year than you do now? Well, there's one easy way to do that. Simple rhythms, simple practices allow us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And that is what I would encourage you to do. So as I close, I'm gonna invite the band back on the stage. And we're gonna practice this really quick to show you how easy this is. Uh, If you wanna take this little blue sheet out, we're gonna pray for two minutes, and I I would encourage you to do this sort of thing over the next 21 days as a part of whatever fast you choose to do, so you and I can taste and see that the Lord is good, and that you and I can see this isn't some hard thing. This isn't like who says it has to look a certain way. Not not right now. We're just going to pray through these five things on this list, but I would encourage you to take this home, either use this list or make another list, have these five things, add maybe five more. Personal needs, uh, things for our nation, things about COVID, friends or family that are hurting or in pain, people that you know that may not yet know Jesus. Take this list in the morning and in the evening or bring it to work and for two minutes before you eat your lunch. Take two minutes and pray. Two minutes, pray and commune with God and see what he might do. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give us two minutes. And we're going to pray over this list. I would encourage you to pray till you get distracted. Go to the next one. If it's 10 seconds, 10 seconds of communing with God is more than zero. And I think God, that's going to be great. Pray through this list if you have a couple other things that you want to pray for as well. Um, we're going to pray silently to God and then I'm going to close us. And then we're going to sing and we're going to worship in the midst of the difficulties of life. Again, this is another contentious week in our nation, as we all know of the events that happened in Washington, D.C. And so what we're going to do is instead of focus on that, We're going to focus on the God who actually can do something about it. We're going to focus on the God who actually can do something about COVID. And we're going to focus on the God who can actually change hearts, which no person or politician can do. So take this list, pray through this list. If you have a couple extra things, pray through that, and then I'll close this in two minutes.